Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Disclaimer right off the top, do not expect journalistic objectivity on this one. Uh, my guest today, uh, and this is this is a, a horribly overused phrase, but I'm going to use it unapologetically anyway. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that my guest today uh, changed my life. His name is Dr. Mark Epstein. Just a little quick backstory before I let him talk. Um, in 2009, my wife gave me a book by a guy named Dr. Mark Epstein. I had never heard of the guy. Uh, and he's a psychiatrist based here in New York City, and he writes about the overlap between uh, psychology and Buddhism. I And I like to tell this story. I actually knew nothing about Buddhism at this point other than the fact that when I was a 15-year-old punk kid, I stole a Buddha statue from a local gardening store and put it in my bedroom because I thought maybe it would help me with the ladies. It didn't. That, that's another story. Um, and I started to read uh, his book the night uh, my wife gave it to me, and it... it blew my mind. Um, I, I had no idea that the Buddha, who I thought of as kind of a religious figure, was actually uh, not a god, not a prophet, um, a mere mortal, uh, albeit probably a genius. And he had um, sort of a diagnosis of the human condition that I, that I, was, that I found deeply resonant and I hadn't really heard before. His, his argument is, uh, well, he, he, he compares the mind to, to a monkey. He, he says we're like furry little primates just hurling ourselves through a, a forest of urges and impulses and desires, constantly latching onto things that won't last in a universe that's characterized by impermanence and hurling ourselves from one hit of pleasant experience to the next, one movie, one latte, one birthday to the next, and never fully satisfied as well, Mark and I have the same meditation teacher. He's a guy named Joseph Goldstein. If you've listened to this podcast before, you may have heard some of his guided meditations that we've posted. As Joseph likes to ask people, you know, how many promotions, uh, how many ice cream cones, um, how many vacations have you experienced, and are you done yet? Of course not. We're insatiable. And in this way, um, the pursuit of happiness that's enshrined in our founding documents becomes the source of our unhappiness. So this was, uh, I'm just kind of um, paraphrasing a lot of what Mark writes about, but I found this to be really compelling. So I did something I'd never really done before, which is I actually called the guy up and said, will you have a drink with me? And I wasn't going to interview him, or I, at that point I didn't know I was going to write a book. I ended up writing a lot about him uh, in in my book, 10% Happier, available at fine bookstores everywhere. Um uh, but so I, I just wanted to have a drink with the guy. So I, there was nothing in it for him. And to my surprise, he said yes. And we went and had a drink at a hotel in downtown Manhattan. And then I kind of basically just forced myself into his life and made him become my friend and give me free uh, meditation advice, free counseling, free psychotherapy, a lot of free stuff. Um, and this was in 2009. So it's like, I'm never good at math, but seven years mm-hmm. we've been friends. And uh, so I can say a lot more about Mark, and I will, but let me just shut up for a second uh, and say thank you for coming on the show. Mm-hmm. Nice to be here. So why did you agree to be friends with me? What were you thinking? When you first called? Yeah. I was not thinking. <laughs> I, um, I was like, <laughs> so oh, you, this is interesting. <laughs> no one ever calls and wants to go out for a drink like that. Really? Yeah. Even after all the books you've written? Yeah. So, by the way, the yeah. name of the book that I read, in case you're wondering, he's Written six books. His seventh is going to come out sometime next year, I believe. The name of the book that I read was Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart. We're going to talk about a lot of his books during the course of this podcast. 
But that book, uh, I highly, highly read. I recommend all of his books, but that was the first one I read, and we'll talk about a lot of the other ones. But anyway, when you met this kind of strange, over-caffeinated, hyper, self-obsessed TV reporter, um, and he demanded that you, you know, like, see him semi-regularly on an unpaid basis, why did you continue with that? Um, well, I liked you from the beginning, so that's probably the main reason. But, uh, but also, you asked good questions. And I, uh, I enjoyed that because your questions made me think. And uh, I think in the same way that writing my books has helped me understand Buddhism and psychotherapy to the extent that I do, because uh, it forces me to say what I think, that in answering your questions, it actually helped my thinking. So I enjoyed that. And you always picked up the check, which, so, <laughs> you know, like, why not come? <laughs> well, there is that. Mm -hmm. There is that. Even Buddhists can be bought. Mm -hmm. um, how, when, where, why, how did you start meditating and find Buddhism? I started meditating probably in my first or second year of college. Uh, I took an introduction to world religion class my freshman year in college, and the first semester was Eastern religion, and I read the Dhammapada, which is a collection of Buddhist verse for lay people, and something in it spoke to me, and I, I keep going back to it. And then... My father, who's a physician, he was at, at Harvard then, where I was. Uh, and he worked with my mother. He worked with your mother, which I did not know. Um, but he was like, what are you studying? And I said, well, I took this religion class, and I'm taking a psychophysiology class, and I'm interested in this Eastern stuff maybe. And he said, oh, there's a guy working for me who's doing research on this, whose name was Herbert Benson, who had written a, uh, a book called The Relaxation Response. Huge bestseller. Bestseller in the 70s. Did, he did research on what was then TM. Transcendental um, Meditation. Transcendental Meditation. And I went to work for him in the summer, and I actually started meditating then uh, using his method that he had stolen from uh, TM. Wait, basically he gave you a mantra, which is like the word one. Yeah, he said repeat like the word one instead of a secret mantra. Silently in your head. Silently in your head, yeah. So I tried that myself sitting in front of the uh, typewriter or whatever preceded computers then. Um, abacus. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Um, and then it was after that that I, um, my, the, the graduate student teacher in the psychophysiology class was a guy named Daniel Goleman, who uh, was then a gra in graduate school, went on to become the psychology writer at the Times, and then wrote Emotional Intelligence. But he already had been in India. And uh, I, there was something about him that I wanted, something, something I saw that I liked and wanted for myself. And he's the one who told me, oh, go, if you want to know more, go out to Naropa, which was like a Buddhist summer camp in uh, Colorado, where I met Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield and Ram Dass and Cher and Salzburg. And that's really when I started doing Buddhist meditation. And those people, just for, for those of you who don't know, the, all those names you just listed are the sort of, they, they often get referred to by me included as the especially Jew-boos. Yeah, especially by yeah. me as the Jew-boos, these sort of young uh, yeah. Jewish people who had gone over Young Jewish India, people. Uh, yeah. uh, who had gone over to um, India and learned how to meditate and come back yeah. and started teaching. They were just back. So they, uh, Joseph and Sharon knew each other. Jack, they didn't know. They were all converged uh, in Boulder. And they were each teaching individual classes. And I was uh, still a, you know, a student in college. So I took their classes and then befriended them and then sat the first meditation courses that they, uh, that they taught and then traveled to Asia with them. And I'm still you know, close with all of them. 
It's interesting you say that Danny Goldman, mm-hmm. um, who's now a friend of both of ours, you introduced me to him, um, had something you wanted because mm-hmm. that's the way I felt about you the first time I met mm-hmm. you because I had been kind of on a little mission to, after having had a panic attack and looking around at different ways to be less of an idiot and um, had met a lot of self-help gurus who I, who you know, had really um, sent my BS meter into overdrive and you, you seemed... Uh, Kind of slightly happier than average, but totally uh, not claiming to be perfected or anything like that. You seem kind of comfortable with your imperfections. Maybe I'm just making this up a little bit, mm-hmm. but that—that's the way you seem to mm-hmm. me. Is it's that a good way you... to see him? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Is that um, was I misreading you? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, let's hope not. But you... I think that personal attraction thing—that's yeah. in in the Buddhist world, people tend to downplay desire, you know, or attachment even, or attraction as something that we're trying to get rid of. But um, I've always found that uh, it, there's a, um, a healthy element to it. I've tried to incorporate that into a lot of my writing. But the thing about Danny Goldman was that he was wearing purple bell-bottom <laughs> pants. Uh, and I was like, oh, corduroy, purple bell-bottom corduroy pants. And I was like, oh, who is this guy? Those are really nice pants. And uh, he later, his wife made them for him in India or something. He I, told me. I question your fashion taste, but I will <laughs> yeah, give well, you it was a pass. Nineteen seventy-two. <laughs> no, fair enough. When we come back, she was kind of asking me, you know, what was going on that you mm. were able to kind of lean in. And one of the things I said was spousal loyalty. <laughs> and she was like, "Oh, so do you mean love?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> After this. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier.
Hey, think fast. Hey, what's this? The solution for your pain. Lidocare pain patch? Yep, the only non-water-based patch on the market blocks pain for up to eight hours. So it gives me eight hours of pain relief and stays dry? That's right. It's patent-pending technology, so it really is one of a kind. It says here it's odor-free, ultra-flexible, dry, and light. The Lidocare pain patch from the makers of Blue Emu. For long-lasting relief, you can wear. Available at CVS. So the ease that sort of wafts off you now and that I got from you in 2009, and I know, again, I'm not trying to say that you're, you never have um, your bad or uncomfortable or unhappy moments. In fact, the fact that you're open about that actually mm-hmm. makes all of it so much more credible and aspirational for me. But that was actually not the case back in 1972 uh, when you were first getting into this. You describe yourself in a lot of your books as being a pretty – uncomfortable, unhappy, uptight kind of guy. Yeah, well, in order to make the books uh, make sense, I have to accentuate those aspects of who I was. But I was definitely anxious. Uh, and I was, I think, probably a big worrier and, um, and something of a striver also within my you know, academic world. So m- my approach to meditation, for instance, was to go to the classes and try really hard and, uh, you know, try to, try to get it with my mind, uh, which was very frustrating. And w- one of the um, uh, uh, breakthroughs that I had in those early days was to tap into some other way of relating to meditation and other people and myself that I, that I got off the Buddhist thing once I entered it in a different way. The breakthrough, if memory serves, actually came through juggling? The breakthrough that summer came from juggling because I was at this Buddhist summer camp slash university where everyone was very serious about their spiritual aspirations. But I had these two roommates who had been assigned to me randomly who were sons, they were twins, sons of Holocaust survivors, parents owned a fruit and vegetable store in Long Beach, Long Island, and they were into like Back to Eden and naturopathy and herbs, and, and they got disgusted right away with all the egos of the supposedly egoless Buddhist teachers, and they stopped going to classes and started driving to Denver in the early morning and bringing back big crates of fruits and vegetables um, into our little apartment. And they taught me to juggle. One of them was already a good juggler. So I would practice with the oranges uh, on the couch, you know, in between classes. And it was, um, and I was, you know, diligently practicing. And once I got the three oranges in the air, like my mind had to relax in order to keep it going. And I understood, oh, yeah, I can use this is what they're trying to tell me to do in meditation. So that helped. You say in some ways... And this isn't actually, I was recently rereading your most recent book, which is also excellent. It's called The Trauma of Everyday Life. And you talk about this juggling mm-hmm. moment. And you say, I can't, I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly, but it was like as if you you were juggling, your mind was juggling the balls, and but your mind was also being juggled. Yeah, I think... Um, uh, the, the, the thing I learned from meditation that, or that maybe I saw first in the juggling was that I was usually so centered in my thinking mind, it never occurred to me to go elsewhere. But in order to, to do the juggling, I had to be more, you know, in, a, in my body maybe or in a, 
uh, in a less um, uh, cerebral place. Uh, and I've come to see that as a therapist when people are bringing emotional experience uh, to me that they're uncomfortable with, that there's a way that we can be with emotional experience as well as the stories we're telling ourselves, as well as the physical sensation of just being in a body, uh, that there's a way to be with all of that that's sort of like the juggling, where we're, it's all part of us. It's, all, it's not like they're different parts. We're, all, we're only one person. Um, but it's all happening, uh, and in meditation, we can sort of fall back and experience things that way, and it, but it's possible in therapy and in life also. So 44 years of meditation? Again, I'm not... Uh, probably 42. 42. Depends when you say I started. Okay. Yeah. What kind of impact does it have on you? And what do you think you'd be like now if you'd never found it? You know, that's like one of those impossible questions mm. because um, I've been intrigued by it for so long that it's been, you know, in and out. It's been a, um, a, a big thread in my life. So who would I be without it? I might have found something else. Uh, I might have just been doing drugs. You know, I'd probably be just another version of who I already am. Uh, maybe... Uh, maybe a little more anxious, maybe worrying a little more, or maybe I would have found another way to deal with that aspect of myself. I don't know. But um, I'm happy to, you know, I'm not tired of it yet, that, that much I could say. It's given me, it's given me inspiration um, in my life that hasn't gone away, that's only kind of opened, uh, and, um, opened and become more. What do you think you get out of it? I... Uh, I think that idea of refuge, like a place of refuge inside of myself, um, it, it's more, it, it's less what I get out of it than that it gives me a place to go. Um, so it's to it's nice that. to have a place to go. What do you, where where are you going? Um, inside somewhere, um, in, inside to a, a kind of timeless place. I, I was trying to explain this uh, to my father before my father died. He he died of a brain tumor, I think like eight years ago, and he had a brain tumor on the silent uh, in the silent part of his brain. So he was totally uh, conscious and aware, uh, un, unimpacted except for his sense of balance and direction. But I had never talked to him. He was a physician, as I mentioned before, a scientist, and I had never talked to him about the um, the spiritual stuff since the time when he sent me to Dr. Benson. Um, but I realized, oh, he's going to die, and maybe I should try to talk to him about what I've maybe learned from this whole thing. So I said to him on the phone something like, you know that place inside of you where you feel the same, you know, you were who you were when you were 19 and who you were when you were 30 and who you were when you were 50? It doesn't really feel any different. And that place, if you... If you try to look at it, it's hard to find. It's sort of invisible or transparent, but you kind of know you're you in there. Uh, I said that's the place they say that if you relax into that, you can kind of ride that out when you're dying. Um, and I think that I was trying to talk about what that what is the place I go to in meditation when I'm not just thinking. Um, <laughs> and he was like, okay, darling, <laughs> I'll try. Um, but he was really listening. That's the closest I've come to being able to describe 
what, what that place might be. And how do you, what's your process when you meditate now? Mm-hmm. How do you get to this place that you're describing? What do you, what do you do? And how long do you do it? And where do you do it? And oh, when? Um, I long ago stopped being religious about the meditating. So, um, so I'm not uh, trying to do it for X amount of time or trying to do it, uh, you, you know, at certain times of the day or whatever. But if the time opens up, then I'm happy to meditate. And I have a few places around the house that are uh, that are good for that, um, so I'll go to one of them. And I don't I don't do it with a clock or a watch or anything. I just sit until I'm ready to get up, um, and I will I watch my breath to the you know I use the breath as the central object. So when I breathe in, I try to know that I'm breathing in. When I breathe out, I try to know that I'm breathing out. Um, uh, but I've stopped trying to zero in on the sensation of the breath as precisely as I did for a long time, realizing I could back off from that a little bit, and that opens it up uh, uh, a little more, or it has recently. Um, so I do it when I can for as long as feels right. And, I, and I've been trying every year to go on a, on a silent retreat for a week or 10 days or however, however much time I can give myself. Talk a little bit more about not fixating so much on the sensations of the breath. What are you feeling instead? Um, that came out of the last retreat that I did where uh, one of the instructors mentioned that as a possibility, and it it uh, spoke to me. So I've been practicing. I, I, instead of um, uh, trying too hard to find the precise sensation, uh, I've just been like, when you breathe in, know that you're breathing in. That's how the actual instructions yes, read. Right from the when, when you when you breathe out, know that you're breathing out. So okay, I know I do know when I'm breathing in. I, I'm often like slightly criticizing myself for <laughs> not being able to find the breath the way I think I'm supposed to. You know, like that never really. I think I was like that 40 years ago, and that element is still with me. So I'm trying to work with that. So I realized, okay, I know when I'm breathing in. You know, I know that I'm breathing in when I breathe in, so that's good enough. And I know that I'm breathing out when I breathe out. And that, I think, helps me settle into a more concentrated place, which I think is like the stepping stone for, uh, you know, that balance between effort and no effort that is uh, seems productive in meditation. But how does what you're describing sort mm-hmm. of knowing you're breathing in, knowing you're breathing out, how does that get you to this place you were describing to your father? Uh, how does it get you there? Yeah, how the whole thing, what you know, the whole thing is mysterious, and uh, uh, um, God knows how uh, uh, one thing leads to another. But what I've seen very clearly over the years is that the meditation is a real thing. You know, it's not a fake thing. It's like if you really do it, stuff happens. Uh, so it and it teaches you. So. It, but it doesn't teach you if you don't do it. But if you just do the basic thing of like, breathe in, know you're breathing in, breathe out, know you're breathing out. If you if you're thinking, know that you're thinking. If you're feeling stuff, know that you're feeling it. The meditation has a momentum that uh, brings you places, shows you things. So one of the things it's shown me is that what I was trying to describe before that transparent, subjective place uh, that we could call self or no self, um, but that we all kind of know that it's there, but don't spend that much time in it. The inner mark. Well, is it really mark? 
Right. I, don't know. I had a whole thing about Mark on one of my retreats too. Tell like, me. Like I don't really like that name, and <laughs> and I felt the sort of like burden of the name, you know, like people calling me Mark when I was a little boy and stuff, and having to answer to it. I was like, oh, it's just a name. Like what a relief. I don't have to, you know, I don't really have to be Mark. There doesn't have to be an inner Mark either. You know. One of the most confusing things about. Buddhism, at least to me, mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, is this idea of no self, mm-hmm. selflessness. Yeah, not in the gen- in this sense of generosity, but the fact that the inner, well, let's take the inner Dan since you don't like the inner Mark so much. Mm-hmm. The inner Dan, which is this this the, this feeling we have of being ourselves, uh, y- if you look for it, you won't really find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but but if we didn't exist, we wouldn't have to put our pants on in the morning, right? So. Uh, we, I, how do we understand this thing of you, we don't really exist, there's no self? Well, well, you don't really exist, but you do have to put your pants on in the morning. So that, that is, you know, you could just work with that idea. But um, selflessness, I think probably selflessness might really mean selflessness like kindness to the other. Um, it, it could be as simple as that. I, I think it's, it's also that the the self that we take so seriously, you know, um, it's not as real as we feel it to be when we're in our neurotic, self-obsessed, you know, uh, worry. Um, Robert Thurman, you know, my friend, the professor of uh, Buddhist studies at Columbia, he had a Mongolian Tibetan teacher uh, when he was young in the early 60s who used to say to him, it's not that you're not real. Of course you're real. You know, your problem is you think you're really real. Um, so it's that sense of, I always like that. It's that sense of really real that I think the Buddhist no-self is after. When you peel away the um, uh, the endless kinds of stories that we're repeating subconsciously about who we think we are, you know, if when you see those things as just stories, just thoughts, no more real than any other kind of thought, it's not that thoughts don't have their own reality, but they have a very evanescent reality. So all the thoughts about yourself are just that also. Take all that away, and then you don't really know who you are. You know, and it's in the not really knowing who you are that maybe you're getting close to what the Buddhists are describing in no self or emptiness or whatever. But so what? Uh, so that's liberating, because then the inner Dan doesn't have to be the inner Dan that the inner Dan thinks he is, you know. Yeah, but the, so it, then it, you could be such a much nicer person. It's <laughs> turning out to be true. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't bet, don't, don't. You always quote your wife as saying it's true. Yeah, no, she doesn't. She says I'm less of a jerk. But that's she's she knows how to talk to you. Yeah, well, that's probably. We just had a long and interesting conversation that I will actually discuss with okay. you. Okay, you have some, to tell me. Yeah, because I I'm going to use this um, as yet another occasion for free uh, therapy, and there's no food that I'm buying you, so this is really going to cost that's you. That's true. Um, anyway, but but getting back to this whole no self thing, yeah. the the. I I've never really known what to do with it. It is true and very interesting that if you. Close your eyes and look for you, or look for like uh, one of the exercises that Joseph teaches, which I think he's taken from Dzogchen teachers, which mm-hmm. is a kind of a flavor of Tibetan Buddhism. But um, which is, you know, to listen to sounds. Yeah, you talk about this too. Listen to sounds and look for what is hearing 
Yeah. And you won't find what is the knowing. I think he says what, what is, is knowing because you're hearing the sound, but who, what is he says what? But it could be who, who, who is knowing. What? The knowing is just there, you know. It's just there. You don't. There doesn't have to be this intermediary of like the the solid self. But everyone who hears this, who wants to understand it, you know, too too much, you know, starts to feel that they have to throw out the obvious, you, you know, as if they don't exist. Period. And uh, even in Buddhist thought, they've had to deal with this. Once they once they put forth the idea of no self but then they also had the idea of reincarnation then they then they had to explain if there's no self but there but you get reincarnated who's getting reincarnated you know so there's definitely so then it's you, you know you can think about the soul but they also had a thing about no soul but there is a and obviously there's a stream of consciousness that makes up the individual person you know who you were at 5 and who you are at 40 you're not the same, that's obvious, but you are connected. So there is an inner something that is proceeding through time. Now, that inner something, you know, we don't, if you stop and look for it, oh, it's, it's by no means clear what that inner something is. You know, so being willing to, being willing to keep looking and wondering and holding the not knowing, that, that's, I think, as close as, you can come to understanding the no self thing without uh, distorting it. But again, what do you, and I know you just what said do you get out of yeah, that? Yeah, what do you get out of it? Uh, a sense of freedom. A sense of freedom, and so and maybe, maybe it plays into the selflessness as kindness to others because you can see, uh, you start to be able to see other people locked into their various conceptions of who they are, what they're capable of, what's holding them back, what they're angry about, what they're ashamed of. And you can see everyone, you know, way burdened in a way that maybe they don't need to be. You had, if memory serves, a bit of a breakthrough on this idea of self, mm -hmm. um, which you describe in your last book, which again I'm going to name uh, the the trauma of everyday life, um, which sounds like a pessimistic title, but is actually not, um, which we can talk about. Yeah, sort of a scary title for people. It was meant to have a little humor, but um, it's a phenomenal book. Uh, you talk about taking a walk while on a retreat a few years ago uh, outside of the Insight Meditation Society, where we both practice in in Barrie, Massachusetts, BA. R.R.E. Massachusetts, a great place to take a retreat if you're going to take one, um, where you have a little bit of a sort of a moment. Uh, do, you, do you remember what I'm I, talking about? Yeah, Can you yeah, describe yeah. it? Um, I, I think I had been reading. You're not supposed to read on these retreats, but they, they have a little library at the um, retreat center there, and I would usually go for maybe half an hour uh, at sunset uh, and just pick things at random and see if they spoke to me in the midst of the retreat environment. So I think I had been reading something, the punchline of which was, uh, there's no self apart from the world. And because like you were just asking, this thing of self, no self, like what, it, what, what am I looking for when I'm meditating? What's it, you know, that's always in the mind when uh, we're doing this practice. So I like that phrase, there's no self apart from the world. And then when I was taking this walk, 
which I like to do when I'm on retreat there. I would go out early in the morning, like after breakfast, but, you know, seven o'clock kind of thing. So the birds are all uh, alive, even in the middle of winter, and the sun is trying to peek through and so on. And there's a nice walk on an old uh, old stage uh, coach road kind of thing. Uh, and I was walking and listening to the birds and looking at everything and, and you know, in that meditative uh, place. I'd probably been there for a few days. And that phrase, there's no self apart from the world, started to resonate. Like I was just in my uh, sensory experience um, and realizing that, that uh, me and the world weren't two separate things. It's kind of, you know, it gets trite if you try to talk about it, but uh, my usual experience is I'm here and the world's out there, you know, and I'm walking through it kind of thing. But I was like, okay, no self apart from the world. My eyes are just reflecting what's out there. My ears are just responding to what's out there. And uh, and that sense of there being one indivisible uh, union, you know, uh, that included me and the world, all of a sudden I thought, oh, maybe I'm really understanding something. Uh, and I remember I went to Joseph uh, Goldstein, who was in residence as the teacher there, and I, was, I described this, and he was like, oh, yeah, that, that might work for a while. <laughs> something <laughs> like that. You know? But that seems like the freedom. You know, like just the intellectual or even the visceral knowing that, okay, this self, the inner Dan is, is, is real but not really real. The really getting a, a gut level sense of the indivisibility that the, that you aren't separate from the world how can you be you, you're great you know you're yeah. created out of the same atoms well, i think that's the inspiration star. in a way or that that gives you some kind of of confidence uh that you don't have to be like you always like to say you don't have to be the <laughs> you know i i think the the freedom is more like when your boss is giving you a hard time or your daughter is making you feel bad or you're having a fight with someone close to you that you don't have to respond in a, the way you normally do you know that 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 you have a uh, that you actually feel like you don't have to and that and somehow that experience of that that you're asking me to talk about of taking that walk somehow that is helpful that memory is helpful in those other more stressful moments i don't quite know if i if i could explain why but i'm pretty sure it is <laughs> the, the thing that sort of comes through and just in this conversation i'm sure people hear it and it's come through in all of our conversations is you're i mean maybe this is what led to me calling the book 10 percent happier in a way which is that you, you really do not oversell or even try to sell at all the notion of meditation when i asked you you know what's it done for you you were like well maybe some you know maybe i'm a little bit less anxious after 40 whatever years of doing this where does that kind of modesty vis-a-vis -vis the impact of meditation come from oh, i'm still waiting for the 10 percent. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't even gotten that I, I don't know um where where does the modesty come from yeah why why do you um, why do you play it down or maybe you're not playing i don't it down. think i'm playing it down i think i'm not playing it up yeah. because i'm not selling it um, and it's, I don't think it's right for everybody, the meditation. I mean, I'm a therapist. I'm, I've been a psychiatrist, like seeing people in therapy for almost as long, you know, 30 some years. Um, and people want, 
a quick fix, you know. They want to they want they want something that's going to change them. And um maybe that's our culture or maybe that's just people, but psychotherapy's not a quick fix, meditation's not a quick fix. People are even if there's no self, people are really hard to change, you know. Um meditation requires that you actually do it, which most people don't. Um, and it might not even be the right thing for a lot of mm. people to be, you know, sit there struggling with their minds, like, you know. So I'm definitely not trying to sell it. I, I feel like it's been a big help for me in my life. So, and I've written a lot of books about it. I'm not hiding that. Um, but But I think it's there for people who are, uh, drawn to it for whatever reason to explore themselves and uh, and when that happens you know like for you who would have thought you would have gotten so into it and you really have and you're doing all that you know like look what's come out of you as a result so and th and that's that does happen you know um, uh, occasionally <laughs> but, <laughs> but it really touches somebody in your view what's more effective and maybe this is a false binary but what what do yeah. you think is more effective therapy or meditation oh I, it totally totally depends i i think w um one of the one of the things i object to the way mindfulness uh, has taken over uh, popular consciousness in the therapy world is that it's kind of edged out traditional psychotherapy so that uh, a lot of people feel a lot of people in training feel like they just want to learn how to be a mindfulness teacher instead of learning how to be a psychodynamic psychotherapist. Or a lot of people feel that if they just learn mindfulness, they can get help with their uh, childhood uh, um, feelings that are still haunting them, that it should be enough. And I don't think it is for a lot of people. Um, so I'm all about, you know, use whatever helps, including medicine and, and so on. Um, I just gave the other day uh, someone who w had a lot of trouble going to um, public events, you know, public speaking or even going to a dinner party um, because uh, he would feel really anxious. Uh, I gave a, a little bit of the stage fright drug, no, you, you know, beta blocker, beta blocker yeah, yeah uh, uh, propranolol or Inderol, and they were like, oh, my God, why didn't anybody give me this, you know, like 20 years ago, like walked into the party, had a good time, didn't berate themselves, you, you know, that's much more effective than either psychotherapy or meditation, but because it, it's very specific for that person, um, you know, for that particular thing. So sometimes there are th very specific treatments that help, sometimes not. And then, you, you know, um, so everyone has to find what works for them. I strongly agree with that, and I may feel this way just because I've known you for a while, but there are a lot of arrows in the quiver when it comes to well-being. Yeah. Um, therapy, medicine, medication, sleep, diet, exercise, good relationships, uh, having a, a, a meaningful work life. And there, you don't have to choose one, and none of them is a silver bullet. Right. Um, I think meditation has been really useful for me, but I, I again, uh, I agree. I'm glad I called the book 10% Happier, even though I'm stuck with math jokes the rest of my life, but... Because I, I think the overselling is a is a problem in the culture for sure. What do you think about with – I wasn't going to go there, but you brought up the sort of mindfulness 
excitement uh, that's in the culture right now. What do you do? You feel like it's edging out. You st- you talked about it edging out traditional psychotherapy. Do you feel like it's edging out Buddhism in a way? And is that worrisome to you? No, it, it might be edging out itself. Uh, <laughs> you know, the the pendulum might have swung already. People. Uh, um, People may start questioning, you know, all the. It's sort of like Prozac, you know, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, um, everyone wanted to take Prozac because it helped some people so much. So everyone who needed help with anything wanted Prozac, mm. you know. And it and if Prozac doesn't help you, then it's like just drinking water, you know. You just get the side effects, or or nothing happens. Um, so I'm all for the mindfulness movement. I think it's been wonderful, you know, that people have picked up on one aspect of Buddhism that uh, is, you know, a wonderful thing. And I think it helped the psychotherapy field to um, realize that there's a practical uh, uh, technique that can be taught that people can take home, that you can learn in a group, that uh, uh, people could practice together, all, all of that. But, um, you, you know, you can't, uh, people really want that quick fix thing, and so inevitably they're going to be disappointed. So yeah. then it'll find its place. Yeah, I think it should just be uh, to use the, the the analogy again. I think it just should be another arrow in the quiver. I mean, yeah, one of the kind of things that we think about. We're trying to figure out how to improve our own well being. This should just be something we can turn to. But it isn't going to be. It's not going to be the be all and end all, and it's not going to be to the exclusion of. The, of other things. Yeah. And the, well, and the thing about psychotherapy is that it, the cult, the time and the culture that Buddhism came from, you, you know, there is no psychotherapy. And, and there mm-hmm. was hardly a psychological self, perhaps. We don't know what the self was like 2,500 years ago. But um, uh, certainly in Asian cultures now, there's a huge need for psychotherapy that uh, is only beginning to be talked about. It's not they're not cultures where people feel free to, you, you know, even investigate their more difficult emotions. You just have to put them away to, you know, do what you have to do in your in your family and for your job and so on. But that doesn't sound super healthy to me. No, I don't think it is super healthy. Yeah. So just on the issue of um, uh, the sort of efficacy of meditation, I mean, I had experience last week that would be worth discussing with you. Um, uh, Bianca, my wife, who you know, uh, she had a double mastectomy last week, uh, so it was pretty intense. Um, and, uh, you know, it was interesting to watch my own reactions around it because uh, I'm so squeamish and not naturally super, like, nurturing. There was a, a passage in your one of your books, Going on Being, where you talked about during the birth of, I think, your second child, mm-hmm. you were a little detached in the delivery room and your wife was a little annoyed at you because you you thought you were kind of applying some of the lessons of meditation but you were misapplying them Mm -hmm. um but i i kind of tried to um lean in even though i'm Mm -hmm. so squeamish i could feel in my body and i was getting cold and i was also getting angry that she was in pain and um you know but i i was i tried to you know be right there for her and look at the wounds in a way that i wasn't normally wouldn't normally do yeah. even though my parents are doctors and she's and Bianca's a doctor but I really f- f- try to f- not fight my own instincts but be aware of my instincts and let them pass and do what I thought was the right thing which was to lean in yeah uh, so I'll, I'll just stop talking and see what you have to say about any of that including your own experience that I that I mentioned well I think just the way that you were describing it is sort of the answer to the question that you were asking me before like how does all this help that that you were able to 
not not repress or suppress your own instincts, but kind of allow them to float around wherever they floated around in your head, and then deliberately try to do what you thought to be the right thing. That that just seems like a a very fruitful use of the meditation. So I hope she felt what you were doing, not not what you were thinking. Um, <laughs> well, I told her both. I mean, I yeah. think she felt it, and I we had no, we were I'm just talking about partly it. Partly kidding. Uh, well, no, no, kidding is fine. She, mm-hmm. we, we we just had a funny conversation, in which she was asking me. You know, she was saying that she thought I was very supportive, and she wanted to say thank you. And I say it's ridiculous to be thank you. This should be basic cable. If you have yeah. ma- major surgery, your spouse should be like right there, and that's like it's not non negotiable. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if her thanking me was, uh, you know, speaks to the low bar that she set or what. But um, she was kind of asking me, you know, w- w- I know how squeamish you are, so what was going on that you mm-hmm. were able to kind of lean in? And, and I, mm-hmm. I don't know, I was listing a bunch of the things, and I, one of the things I said was spousal loyalty. <laughs> and she was like, oh, so do you mean love? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and and I said, yes, that's actually what I meant. Um but I, you know, I, I think I think this is exactly what meditation, where the benefit of med, where the rubber yeah. hits the road with meditation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been doing it for seven years, not a long time. But if you work on your biceps for seven years, like you'll be able to lift stuff up. And if you work on seeing clearly what your how your mind and body are at any given moment, without getting carried away by it, then I think in when you need it, sometimes you'll be more effective or less. Yeah. Um, well, it's just it's such a good example of how you end up feeling better by doing the thing that's a little a little more difficult, mm. you know, because you didn't have to pull so far away from her. Or it just because yes, and also just less of a um, you see that the buffers between you and doing the thing that you know is really the right thing yeah. to do aren't as solid it's as you just thought. your mind. I yes. know it's just your mind. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if I'm now overselling meditation, but I do think that yeah. it, it can be useful, and that was a great example for me personally. Um, I talk a lot about, just sort of getting back to your last book, um, I talk a lot about mindfulness. Uh, we talked about the other thing that people talk about in Buddhism, which is selflessness, but mindfulness mm-hmm. is the other the other big thing. And I talk about it in a pretty kind of work-a-day manner. I, I, I think about it as the ability to, see what's going on in your head at any given moment without getting carried away by it, which is really what was going on with me in the hospital with mm-hmm. Bianca. Um, but you actually put it in a really, in, in, in really I think, beautiful and elevated terms, and I'm just going to pick a quote from your, your last book um, and just get you to talk about it a little. One of the central paradoxes of Buddhism is that the bare attention of the meditative mind changes the psyche by not trying to change anything at all. The steady application of the meditative posture, like the steadiness of an attuned parent, allows something inherent in the mind's potential to emerge, and it emerges naturally if left alone properly in a good enough way. Sounds like the way I write. A little too, <laughs> a little too complicated. No, I, I think so. I'm trying to get simpler. Um, I like the I like the phrase "bear attention." Um, I like to mix that up with mindfulness. Uh, one one of the first books that I ever read about mindfulness, about Buddhism, was called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation by a uh, 
who I thought was a Sri Lankan monk uh, from Ceylon named Nyanaponika Tara, Tara is T-H-E-R-A, which just means elder, it turns out. And Nyanaponika means flowing towards wisdom, I think. But he was a German refugee. Nyanaponika was a German refugee named, I think, Sigmund Fenninger or something, who left Berlin in the 30s and went to Sri Lanka and studied Buddhism and then got put in a prisoner of war camp by the British uh, during the war did a lot of translations of Buddhist texts, and then moved back to Sri Lanka and started the Buddhist Publication Society. And he wrote a lot of the first, the first like Westerners interpreting Buddhism for us. Uh, he must have written in German, and then it got translated into English. I'm not sure. But anyway, he used this phrase, bear attention, um, which he had a good definition for that, that I almost know. Uh, the, the clear and single-minded awareness of, what's happen, of what happens to us and in us at the successive moments of perception. Uh, just the bare knowledge, like an exact registering, knowing your reactions as separate from the thing itself. It's like the raw data of experience. Like the raw data of experience, yeah. So I really like that. I, I, I keep coming back to that. I think the first uh, Dharma talk, the first kind of attempt I ever made to teach Buddhism to in, in a public way, I framed it around that uh, idea of bare attention. Um, and then uh, years after I read that book, and I actually met Nyanaponika when I went to Sri Lanka the first time, um, I became very influenced by this British child psychoanalyst, Donald Winnicott, D.W. Winnicott, who talks about what, what, it, what the ordinary devoted mother, he wrote in the 40s and 50s, so you could say mother or parent, but the, the attitude of the ordinary devoted good enough mother uh, who doesn't, uh, doesn't intrude but doesn't um, uh, abandon in the face of her child's anger, rage, uh, ruthless attacks, etc., and uh, uh, I always thought that what he was describing in the "quote unquote" good enough parent was similar, if not identical, to what Nyanaponika was describing in, in when he's talking about bare attention or mindfulness. That w what we're doing when we're trying to be mindful is we're basically applying that kind of uh, maternal uh, attention that's part of our biological uh, inheritance. You know, we have it in us already. Um, and like you were saying before, if you practice it over time, it gets stronger. Uh, what, w what was great about Winnicott was he was saying, look, this is intuitive. It's there naturally in a mother. You don't need, he was like in working in the 50s, like, it's a breastfeed. It's okay to breastfeed. Trust yourself. Don't listen to the experts. He was all about like bringing out what's already there in the mother, and I think there's something in Buddhism that's like bringing out what's already there in the mind. We we know how to do this, even if we don't know how to do it. You know, once we sort of find the thread of it, like with the juggling, you you know, then it can take over. So like when you're on the cushion, when you're meditating, whatever, uh, you can view the contents of your own consciousness with the well i guess isn't there a tibetan um or maybe it's tibetan i don't know what the you can kind of view it like a grandparent watching kids playing in a playground yeah. you know with some 
um, remove, but a but a beneficent remove. Thich Nhat Hanh says, uh, "Hold anger like a baby," uh, uh, which I always like. Does it work for you? Uh, a little bit sometimes. If I'm not too angry, <laughs> if I'm just sitting on the cushion, it's easier. Yeah. Do you still, after all this time, you know, get pretty deeply pissed off sometimes? Uh, oh yeah, of course. What do you think? It does, it's not like it goes. I don't think. I don't believe in that thing that it goes away. Do you believe that you can handle it better? Do I believe that I can handle it better? <laughs> better than I could have once? Yeah, sure. So we're talking about parenting and D.W. Mm. Winnicott. What, yeah. what kind of – you have two grown children. Uh, I have a 17-month-old holy terror named Alexander. Um, what kind of uh, impact can meditation and mindfulness have on parenting? Um, and what advice would you impart to me? What, what what advice would I impart to you? Mm -hmm. After the baby goes to sleep, that's the good time to meditate. Uh, in the room? In the, no, just in the house. Because there's, you, you know, when you have little kids, it's like all about the little kids all the time. There's no real escape. Even if you have uh, a good babysitter or whatever, you're still totally conscious of what's going on. Um, but there's that nice moment. It's like when, when dusk falls, when the, when the child takes uh, his or her nap or when they go to sleep at uh, seven or eight or nine or whenever you manage to get them asleep, then it's like, you know, peace falls in the household. So you, your impulse is to, oh, go have a drink or have dinner or read the paper or turn the TV on or whatever. But there's a nice moment there to meditate. And um, I used to meditate with, when my kids uh, had trouble falling asleep or wanted me to stay in the room with them longer than I really wanted to stay in the room with them, but I thought that, you know, how that is when you're a parent, you don't know, what, should you be strict or should you give them what they're, uh, what they're claiming to need? So, so I would, I set for a few years, I set my meditation cushion up in the room with them, and uh, then if they were having trouble going to sleep or whatever, I would just sit and meditate, um, and then eventually they would fall asleep, but they knew I was there kind of thing. And then I remember at various times they would call to me, you know, like, D Daddy, will you come meditate with me? <laughs> and so I felt like that was, that was going to be helpful for them. Um, but I think now that they're older, they're both in their 20s, uh, uh, some of my uh, faith that if I just, you, you know, uh, uh, meditated around them or uh, introduced them, made this part of, of what they were growing up in, that it would take care of all of their problems— I've been disabused of mm. that. You know, they're, everybody, they're, they're their own individuals. They have their own stuff to work out. We, my wife and I tried really hard to, you know, like many of our generation, to be uh, uh, there for everything we could do, you know, and they still, they still have to find their own way. So that's sobering. Do they meditate? Did you encourage them to do so? Uh, I didn't encourage them, but I, but I let them know that it was... Uh, out there for them, uh, they knew all the you know uh, all the all the characters who had um, influenced me and become my friends. And they each, uh, especially in their time in college, where now you can like, t I guess when I was in college you could take courses in it too, but um, they each kind of investigated it while they were in college and tried to see whether there was anything for them in it. I think they're still figuring that out. Yeah, I've talked to your older daughter, Sonia. I've talked to her about it a little bit. Yeah. She's, she's gone on retreats. She went on a couple yeah. of retreats. Yeah. yeah, they have these retreats in Barry for young people, which they define as, I think, up to 30 now. <laughs> um. 
<laughs> I used to always be the youngest one on the retreats, you know, when I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And when I was in my 50s, I still felt like I was the youngest <laughs> one on the retreats. So. Um, uh, when Do you have a, a goal for your meditation? Are you trying to get enlightened? I'm definitely trying to get enlightened, yeah. And what do you mean by that? What do you, what do you I, I don't know what I mean by it anymore. <laughs> I'm like pursuing the goal that I don't that I don't understand. And how do you pursue it? Do you pursue it real? Like, are you really gunning for it, or are you kind of pursuing it in a softer way? Um, I'm really gunning for it in a softer way because I've I've figured out that the softer way is the is is more the uh, is actually the uh, uh, the more intense way. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, if you gun for it in too aggressive a way, it's obviously not going to work. Um, so so you have to back off. So then the backing off is really you're still trying. I'm still trying as hard as ever by backing off. Fair enough. I, I kind of understand if that. that makes no, sense. A little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the traditional definition, at least from my reading of Buddhism, of enlightenment is, or, or com- full enlightenment is the uprooting of greed, greed hatred, and delusion. Uh-huh. Um, well, that's the easy definition. Okay, that's so the definition they give you when if you start asking too many questions, <laughs> and they don't want to tell you if okay. they real if they believe it's an actual experience. Well, give or us not. the real thing. I don't know what the real thing is. What are you uh, What are you gunning for in your? I software? told you, I lost. I, I lost touch with the goal, with what it actually is. But I just read this. I was reading this little book about one of Sharon and Joseph's teachers. You know this woman Deepama. Mm-hmm. Have you heard stories mm-hmm. about Deepama? Mm-hmm. I have this little book about her. I think it's called Knee Deep in Grace or something. I never really looked at it because it's a collection of testimonials and it looked kind of, uh, what's that word, like hagiographic or whatever. Yeah, or, Uh, I mean, you could, yeah, anyway. um, But anyway, I I met her a couple of times and she was wonderful, but I never had a deep connection with her. But I was reading for something I'm writing now. I wanted to look at it. And deep in that book, you might not have seen this yet. I know you're interested in this question of enlightenment. She, they talk, someone talks about her talking about her enlightenment, her first enlightenment experience. And she says something like she was sitting and then there was just this most, like it's almost like nothing happened. It was like, a, like a, the rustling of a bird's wing or something. <clears throat> and just, a, just an instant that, was, that had a different quality, like a sort of, almost like really nothing quality. And that was her first enlightenment experience. That would have been stream entry? Whatever they call it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think they, I think early Buddhism created a bunch of narratives around these experiences that then they coded into, you know, made a, uh, a story out of. Um, so yes, stream entry. But that was her first, her for according to either her or whoever's telling the story, that you know, the nature of the experience was that, that ephemeral. Why? But, but also, but, but not something she missed, you know? But why are you gunning for this thing that you've lost? Why, why set this goal that you can't even define? Um, uh, I didn't set the goal. The goal is, the goal is, comes with the territory. Yeah, but you, you know, can ignore with, it. I, I basically have ignored it, uh, except that I believe in it. <laughs> You're talking like one of these, like, you're, you're talking like me. Yoda, like who no, giving this elliptical. You're asking me to tell you what, what's real. I'm trying to tell you this is how I think about it. 
But you see how it would be confusing, right? Or are you deliberately trying to confuse? I'm not, I'm deliberately confusing. <laughs> you are deliberately I'm, confused. Or I'm I'm indeliberately confused. Do you think it's a um do you think for you having this goal, however you hold it, is yeah. is serves you? Yeah, I think so. Like there's a famous story about uh Tsongkhapa, you know, the the he's the great saint of uh the Golugpa school of Tibetan Buddhism mm-hmm. lived in the 14th century. Um, when he got enlightened, the first thing he did when he got enlightened, he wrote a big enlightenment statement, you know. But the first thing he said was, oh, it's exactly the opposite of what I thought it was going to be, you know, which I always like that because I, I know I'm not enlightened. So what do I think it's going to be? How do I imagine it? You know, oh, like a great cessation, you know, no more greed, hatred and delusion, like going to a heavenly place. Like, you, you know, like finally understanding everything, you, you know, what are the very, so it, what's the opposite of all of that? You know, what would that be? So I don't know, but, but you know, for sure it's not going to be what I'm imagining it's going to be, right? But, but, but you, the Buddha was pretty explicit about what it is. The uprooting was he? Of greed. Yeah. Well, I thought, I mean, like I've, I've read a little bit of the scriptures yeah. and he says the uprooting, uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion. I mean, I'm not saying I believe in this. Yeah, I'm just yeah, saying yeah. that's what he says it is. Okay. <laughs> that would be super nice. But you don't, but you don't, you don't I'll hold believe to that. it when I see it, you know? But you don't even hold to that as a, as a def. Don't you think if you're going to have a goal, it makes sense to have an understanding of what the goal is? That would make sense, yes. I'm all for that. You're not all for that. And for most goals, yeah. But why not on this one? Well, like God. What's God? I have like, no does idea. Does anyone understand what God is? Well, some people claim they do. Yeah, well, do you believe them? Um, I am respectfully agnostic. Okay, that? so the uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion. That would be nice. So I should hold the same respectful agnosticism toward that, maybe, as well. Maybe. I mean, whatever you want. But it, but but it's it's just uh, for me. Okay, yeah. forget Set you aside for a second. For me, it is hard. It's a very. I'm interested in whatever lies beyond ten percent happier. Yeah. But I don't know how to define it. I don't even know if I believe in it. Well, well, you know that the self is a problem. Yeah. Right. Like we're all sort of like uh, locked in a little bit mm-hmm. to this body-mind phenomenon that we experience as, you know, like Mark or Dan, Mm -hmm. you know, and we know it's sort of troubling. Like we're going to, we're in this body. How did we get in this body? And we're in, we have this life and we're going to die. We see our parents and, uh, you know, know, things go wrong and we're, you know, like we know what it's like to be, uh, uh, to be us. And then there's some, this notion of enlightenment, like, oh, like we're, that what enlightenment says the way we're the idea of enlightenment says the way we're experiencing the world is uh, ignorant or deluded, right? So what does that mean? You, like you sort of know, you sort of know you're deluded, um, but there, so there's greed, hatred, and delusion. Like greed, we know; hatred, we uh, we know. Delusion, like what is that? Um, you kind of know what it is. I kind of think about it as as being confused about it. It's all. I don't know if I'm going to be able to articulate mm-hmm. this well, but the delusion is something around the sense that you are separate from everything else. When you, of course, you can't be. Right. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's just like no self apart from the world. Right. And we're not. 
were were part of the world. But what you know, like you were asking me, like what what's the so what? But does it come down to that trite idea of oneness with everything? Probably not, because we can imagine that. But if it's exactly the opposite of what we can imagine, you, you know, it's probably much more. It's probably much more about like we're we're loving entities that, and we're we're not always connected to the love that we're capable of. In my mind, say more about that. I don't, I don't know. That's all you but, have to say about that. Yeah, I mean, basically. <laughs> We're capable of more love than we express. But that goes back to a connectivity and oneness. Yeah, 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 perhaps. Um, Did you read the book On Having No Head? I did. Joseph loves that book. Yeah, he recommended it to me, too. So it's a book called On Having No Head, and I can't remember the name of the guy. Some German guy, yeah. British. A British? British guy. Um, And I, too, read this on a retreat, uh which I know is like an illicit little book that I kept in my room. But yeah. it's real. It really struck me. His idea is it's his little conceit is that w- you can see other people's heads, but you can't see your own right. head. And in fact, your experience of the world is of headlessness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that to be actually kind of powerful. I mean, it's silly at first, but mm-hmm. it actually is real. That if you if you look, the way we're experiencing the world is through this kind of yawning chasm of pure knowing, right? Mm-hmm. And but there seems to be something there to that. I don't know if it connects to what yeah. we're talking about. Yeah, yawning chasm of pure knowing. That's, I'm just pulling should, that out of my butt. Yeah, that was good. All right, thanks. But yeah. but but do you think I'm? Uh, is do you see a connection between that and and? Yeah, well, like Joseph said, when I when I came to him after that walk, like that'll work for a while. You know, working with that, then then it, then it kind of loses its its uh, kick. dynamism. Yeah, right. Loses so its kick. But what is that? So these things work for these little, like, mm-hmm. on having no head might work for me for a little while. Mm-hmm. Or some little meditative technique might work for me a little while. But that does seem to indicate that there's something that will do it for you. And we just haven't found it yet. Yeah. This is what kind of messes with my mind about, medit- about enlightenment. Well, well also, if, if, I'm, if I'm right at all about the, you know, that we're capable of more love than we're expressing and that's sort of the point. Um, then just to say that it's about connection or pure or oneness or whatever that that diminishes the individual responsibility of being mm. you know embodied right. or minded whatever and whatever, having agency having agency yeah. and I'm I'm pretty sure the point is not to uh, just surrender your agency right so I mean in some ways it may come back to just sort of. Uh, normally selfish, self-centered Dan in the hospital last week with his yeah. deeply suffering wife, and I, w- I had more to give than I thought yeah. I had to give, even yeah. though, frankly, what I was giving is so, as I said before, basic cable. I mean, like, that yeah. shouldn't be... I'm not overly proud of myself for not being an absentee husband well, in that moment, but I did have more to give than I thought I did. And maybe that is kind of like a continuum of enlightenment. Maybe. You know that the book of mine that you liked, the uh, going to pieces without falling yeah, apart. Yeah, I like all your books. Just for the but the first, the one that you that that brought you to me. But um, the way I structured that book, because uh, I had just read all this uh, Buddhist tantric stuff, was around the four stages of Tibetan tantra, which are compared to the process of falling in love. So it was, I think, looking, smiling, embracing, and orgasm. Uh, because the the closest thing that we the closest experience that we can have, so it's said in a regular life, 
that approximates the experience of enlightenment is the process of uh, sexual union. So, and the thing about sexual union is that you're simultaneously uh, yourself, but also uh, um, in union with the other. So I think there's something about the simultaneity of um, of being a, a, an individual, but also connected, that we, because we think in a binary way, we think we either we're one or the other, you know, uh, but that they're actually, it's all existing simultaneously at its, um, at its core. Mm. Something about that is interesting to me. Yeah, you've t- you, in some of your books, you talk uh, about sort of porousness of borders. Yeah. Personal borders. Yeah, yeah. And they use orgasm, you know, in the in the secret teachings, they use orgasm as, you know, what they're saying is that the underlying nature of reality is, is uh, orgasmic, that huh. we that we think about it as, you know, just an instant, but that actually that's the the subterranean nature of things. So the like enlightenment, I know. So what if what if that's enlightenment? You know, uh, then that's a goal I would definitely shoot right. for. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that took me a second to get. Um, normally, we uh, cut these things off earlier, but but you're so fascinating. A and B, just as an aside, this is not the last time you're going to be on here because you have another book coming out in the not-too-distant future, and I want to bring you back to talk about that. But before I let you go, if you have time, I want to ask you one last question. Mm. Are you cool with that? Mm-hmm. You had recommended to me over brunch not long ago. We get together, and often it's over brunch, and... Um, uh, that I investigate more Tibetan Buddhism because mm-hmm. most of what I've looked at is um, uh, known as Theravadan Buddhism, which is kind of the old school early Buddhists. Um, what, why, why did you make that recommendation? Do you remember making that recommendation yeah, sure. and why? Um, well, because over 1,500 years or whatever in the Buddhist culture of South Asia, B- Buddhism itself evolved, uh, and it, it went from the predominant view being we're here in samsara, we're here in this life which is painful and suffering and we want to escape from it by meditating and reaching enlightenment and that's going to remove us from this world. You know, that's the, and and we'll achieve nirvana and that, and there's a, uh, they parsed it in various ways, but the, the sort of underlying dominant philosophical position was that nirvana was over there, you know, like suffering and samsara is here and nirvana is over there and we're trying to escape. That's very simplified. But uh, but as Buddhism evolved and I think as people wrestled with these questions of what is enlightenment and what is the point and uh, do we just go and meditate ourselves away or do we are we supposed to come back and be in the world, you know, um, the, this that dualistic thing, subtly dualistic thing, people really began to question that. And the later developments in Buddhism that um, uh, became the Mahayana and that some of which is preserved in the Buddhism that went to Tibet uh, questions all of that and is much more about nirvana and samsara being uh, two faces of the same coin, you mm. know, two sides of the same coin. Like a Janus. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, and this idea that I was talking about before of the underlying nature of reality that we think is suffering. You know, it's the deluded or ignorant mind that sees it as suffering. But if we could see everything the way the Buddha saw it, we would be immersed in the orgasmic reality of that is this world, not 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 in another not another place, not another world. You know, uh, and so that I think once you've been 
uh, meditating for a while and asking these kinds of questions and wondering about it, it's um, illuminating to see that, oh, yeah, people were, a thousand years ago, people were questioning this and writing poetry about this and coming up with other possibilities for how to understand it. And, uh, you know, it's refreshing. All right, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you like it, I'm going to hit you up for a favor. Please subscribe to it, review it, and rate it, preferably five stars, but, you know, four will do. Five is better. I want to also thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Sarah Amos, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. And uh, hit me up at Twitter, Dan B. Harris. See you next time. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.